How you guys liking the solas? All right? Okay, let me recap, recapitulate a little bit here, okay? <clears throat> so this is week three, sola number three. First week, we, talk, we said, talked about some hard things, right? We, we talked about uh, grace alone, right? We talked about uh, the doctrine of total depravity. We talked about the doctrine of man's total inability to make any step toward God, right? And, and, and those, are, those are hard things to wrestle through, okay? Those are big, big ideas to wrestle through, right? And then I gave you, we talked about six different aspects of God's grace. And then last week we came to, to sola fide, faith alone, right? And, and, and we, 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 we put faith alone in opposition to uh, some of the Roman Catholic doctrine of kind of works-based works based salvation. And I gave you five main points last week, and I'm, I'm going to recap those real quick just so we, we get where we need to go. I gave you five main points last week, okay? Why, why justification by faith alone is necessary, okay? Number one, I said that faith alone in Christ is because of the object of our faith. It must be by faith because of the object of our faith. Then I said justification must be by faith alone because of the fact that justification is a gift, right? You don't earn a gift, right? And I gave the, I gave the analogy of a birthday party and a birthday gift, right? You receive it. You don't work for it, right? So then I said, number three, I said, justification by faith alone is necessary because it's counted to us as righteousness. And we talked about Abraham a little last week and how his faith was credited to his account as righteousness, right? We can't earn it, right? Then I gave you point four. Must be by faith alone because faith excludes boasting, right? If it's something that you did, or I did, to earn it, then we have something to boast about, right? But faith excludes that totally. None of us have anything that we can boast to another person or before God about. And then finally, it must be by faith alone because faith upholds the law. And then we, we talked a little bit about how if we have a heart of faith, a regenerate heart that loves the Lord, we want to obey him, right? It's, the law doesn't go away. The law is removed from us as our, as our way to receive righteousness. And once that weight is removed, now we're free in Christ to obey the law. So those were our, our five main points. And then, and then I, hit you, I hit you with some challenges after that, okay? So we've come to week number three, solo number three. And you're probably wondering what this is. I'm gonna, I'm gonna give the rights a hard time here. So <clears throat> I said that week one, I feel like I'm gonna throw up every time I come up here, right? And it's true. Even back then, I, even back there today, I felt like I was gonna throw up. So the rights came up to me last week. <laughs> and they gave... <laughs> they, <laughs> they, gave me, they gave me a vomit bag. <laughs> just in case. Just in case the, the front row is in danger in some, some way. 
I appreciate that. That's a, that's a, it was great. It was great. Okay. I want to confess something to you. This is the most difficult sermon I've ever had to write in my life. Okay? Christ alone. Solus Christus. And I know what you're thinking. You're like, that's a, that's a softball, man. What are you talking about? Here's the problem. The whole Bible is about Jesus. <laughs> so, so how do we condense the entire Bible into a 47-minute and 13-second sermon? Okay? So that was the task <laughs> that was before me. And I struggled with it all week. Okay? But it's important. Okay? I want us to look. I don't want to just pass over that. Let's, let's park here for just a minute. Okay? The whole Bible is about Jesus. We need, to, we need to know that, okay? Everything in the Old Testament, all the types and shadows, the sacrificial system, the, the office of priest and, and king and the office of prophet, all of those offices, all of those types and shadows point us to a fulfillment of those things in Christ. And then we, you get to the New Testament and... You have the four accounts, the four gospel accounts of the life and ministry of Jesus, right? While he's here on earth, what did he do? And then the rest of the New Testament, all of the epistles, what those apostles are actually writing about is they're expounding upon what they learned from Jesus. So therefore, those are about Jesus too. They're just expounding on what Jesus taught them while, he was, while he, they walked with him in his earthly ministry. So the whole of scripture points to Christ, which is why we will not be unhitching the Old Testament from anything. A few of you got that one. Let's pray. I want to pray. We need to pray. I need to pray. <clears throat> God, every soul in this place needs the Holy Spirit to apply your word to our hearts and to renew our minds in your truth your biblical revelation. This morning, would, would you just make much of Jesus as we study this doctrine of Christ alone? It is in Jesus' mighty name that we pray. Amen. Solus Christus. <clears throat> you guys ready? I'm going to give you the outline. Give it, I'm going to give it to you ahead of, ahead of time. We've got three main points, or three main sections, okay? Uh, most of the people in 9 o'clock, they really, if you're a note taker today, I got you. It's going to be lists and lists and numbers and lists and sub points and lists, okay? So if, if you're a teacher or you like to take notes, man, this is a, it's a great day for you here, Okay? Point number one, we're going to talk about the person of Christ, okay? Point number two, we're going to talk about the work of Christ from a Roman Catholic 
doctrine from a Roman Catholic perspective. Because remember, the Reformation happened because the Reformers saw what was happening in the Catholic Church and they were they had a problem with a lot of things. And we haven't, we haven't really div, dived much. Did I say divin? Did I just say divin? We haven't dived. At, my, my wife's like, oh my gosh, what, who is this clown? <laughs> we haven't dived very much into Roman Catholic theology. We've hit a few things, but today we're going to lay out. We're going to lay out some of the Roman Catholic doctrine. So if you're Roman Catholic today or you come from a Roman Catholic background, be patient with me, okay? If I say something that you learned that's incorrect, come talk to me afterward, okay? But I did, I did some fairly decent research here, okay? So, so we're going to look at the work of Christ. Number two, we're going to look at the work of Christ from a Roman Catholic perspective, and then we're going to look at the work of Christ from the Reformer's perspective and from the Protestant perspective, which I would claim is the biblical perspective, Okay. Here we go. Here we go. I've already said divin, so we we're, <laughs> can only go up here, hill from here. All right. Number one, the person of Christ. Let me just give a, a couple of quick notes. Okay. Jesus, in his personhood, he is one person, but two natures. Okay. He has a full human nature and a fully divine nature in one person, okay? That the union in one person of those two natures is called the hypostatic union. Some of you, probably a lot of you have heard of that, okay? <clears throat> hypostatic union. We know Jesus is God. We know he is fully God. And we know that from John chapter 1. Right? In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Right? So we know that Jesus has a full di divine nature. Right? If you don't have a, if you don't, if you never had a, a Reformation study Bible, it's incredible. It's got all the creeds and confessions and catechisms in the back. So I'm going to read from some of those today because I think they're, they can say things way better than I can. I'm going to read a little bit from the Nicene Creed. Okay? If you, if, you, if you don't know what the Nicene Creed is, in 325 A.D., in order to combat the heresy of Arianism, the Christians called a council to talk about what they were hearing about the person and work of Jesus, okay? That's what they did. We probably should bring councils back, I think, but okay, well, that's not, neither here nor there, okay? I'm going to read from the Nicene Creed. This is regarding our Lord, Jesus we believe in one Lord, Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, begotten of his Father before all worlds. He is God of God, light of light, very God of very God, begotten, not made, being of one substance with the Father. That's crucial. He's one substance. That means, that means the Son, Jesus, the eternal Son, he shares a very nature with the Father and with the Holy Spirit. They, are, they share one essence. Right? By whom all things were made. Beautiful language of our Savior. Right? We know that he is God. But we also know from Scripture that he's fully man. Would you, uh, would you put uh, Philippians chapter 2 
up there, please. <clears throat> Paul writes this, who though he was in the form of God, that's Jesus, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born, what, in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross, right? So we, we know, we see from Scripture, Jesus is fully God, but he's also fully man, right? I'm going to read, I'm going to read now a little bit from the Chalcedonian definition of faith, okay? In 451, they had another, the Christians had another council that they met with, and it's called the Council of Chalcedon. So I'm going to, I'm going to read a little bit about Jesus. It expounds it a little bit more here, okay? <clears throat> he's only begotten. Jesus is acknowledged in two natures, unconfusedly, unchangeably, indivisibly, and inseparably. We'll talk about that in a minute. The differences of the natures being in no way removed because of the union, but rather the properties of each nature being preserved. I know, you're all looking at me like, what are we talking about here? <laughs> what, what that's saying is Jesus, God, div divine nature, always acts in accord with his divine nature. It never crosses over. It never overtakes the human nature. It always acts in accord with the divine nature. And his human nature never overtakes or does anything against or confuses the divine nature. All, his human nature always acts in accord with his human nature. Right? Now, if you, can, if you can get your mind around that, let me know because you got a way bigger brain than I do. It's, it's, <laughs> there's mystery there. But he always acts in accord with each of his natures. Okay? And we know that from Scripture, right? When Jesus was tempted in the wilderness, he was fasting for 40 days. Guess what? He was hungry. Why? Because if you don't eat for 40 days, humans get hungry, right? So he's fully human, right? Uh, think about, think about when, the, when he interacted with the woman, in, the Samaritan woman. He was at the well. He had been hiking. He had been going there for a long time. What did he say? Give me some water. Why did he need water? Because he's thirsty. Humans need water, right? Amen. I can't live without water for two minutes. <laughs> Divine nature. We, we know from Scripture that he acted in accord with his divine nature too. If you recall, there was one time he was asleep on the boat and a storm came and his disciples got freaked out and what did he do? He said, stop. And what did the storm do? It stopped. Why? Because he's God. <laughs> he created that water from his own very mouth. He created it. Right? Think about, think about uh, Lazarus. Right? How, how did the story of Lazarus, I had a chance to preach this at, at, youth, at youth camp. Right? He, he revealed himself to Martha, if you recall. Martha runs out after Lazarus has died. She runs out to meet Jesus. And what does Jesus do? He tells her, I am the resurrection and the life. Well, what, is that, what does that phrase, I am, mean? It means he's claiming to be God. What did, what did Martha need in that moment? She needed to know that she's standing before God himself. So Jesus revealed himself to her in that moment to be God. But then the very next thing that happened, what happened? Martha went and got Mary, and Mary came out. And what, 
how did Jesus deal with Mary? Did he tell her, I am? No. He got in the, he got in the emotions with her. He got down in the muck and the mire of the fact that her, her brother had just died. And what did he do? He wept. He revealed in that moment she needed to know, Jesus, my Savior, is with me in this moment where I'm struggling. Right? So he reveals himself at times to be in accord with each one of those natures in Scripture. Okay? Everybody good so far? Okay. All right. But, and by the way, just so we're clear, the Roman Catholic Church, they would agree with everything that we just talked about. They, they get the person of Jesus correct. They, they are in perfect accord with everything that we just read and talked about, right? So they get the person of Jesus correct. Here's the problem. The Roman Catholic Church separates Jesus' person from his work. And as Protestants... We believe that that is, you can never separate. Jesus' Jesus' work is what it is because of his person. Those two things are connected always. They must be. So we're point two. The work of Christ according to Roman Catholic doctrine. Okay? Stay with me here for just a minute. Right? This is not our primary focus, but we do need to lay this out in front of us and know why it is that the reformers are doing the things that they're doing and why they're, re- they're rebelling against the Roman Catholic Church, okay? This is important. Roman Catholic doctrine teaches Jesus is necessary for salvation, but his work only removes original sin, and when, when I read that, I was like, I had the same question you probably had, which is, well, what about, if, what about the rest of the sins? What about the next 80 years of them sinning? It's a great question. All right. Here's, here's the answer. The Catholic Church at this time was teaching that the actual church was a second Christ. Yes. You need Jesus to be saved. He removes your past sins and original sin. But in order to actually be saved, you have to join the Catholic Church. And, and not, not only do you have to join the Catholic Church, you have, to be, you have to participate in the sacramental system of the Catholic Church. Because the church is a second Christ. We'll talk about baptism. Let's talk about baptism. Baptism in the Catholic Church, it's a sacrament. They believe that it removes original sin. So you must be baptized in order to be saved. What happens if, they, what happens if someone sins? Well, if someone sins with a normal sin, you have to go to a priest. You have to confess that sin to the priest. And then the priest is going to give you the works that you need to do in order to make up for that sin and, and put that sin away. So the pre- you may, may go to the priest, and the priest may tell you, you need to do five Hail Marys, and you need to do this, and boom, bada bam, you, that sin's gone. That's called penance. What about if somebody dies? We, if they have still indwelling sin, they go to a place called purgatory. Okay, that purgatory, it's, a, it's like a tweener place. It's not hell, but it's not heaven. It's a place where you work off the rest of your sin. 
so that you can make it to heaven, right? Are, are you seeing that the, 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 this is a very works-based salvation? The mass. This is really important. This is the, I mean, this is, this is their primary thing that they, they need in order to be saved is the mass. So I'm, I don't want to, I'm going to quote from their own doctrine, their own counsel, their own documents right here, okay? Because I don't want to, I don't want to get anything wrong. So here's, here's the counsel of Trent. We quoted from it last week. I'm going to read this to you. This is their, this is their quote on the mass. The same Christ who offered himself once in a bloody manner on the altar of the cross is present and offered in an unbloody manner. The priest takes the bread and the wine. He blesses it. He be they believe that it turns into the very body and blood of Jesus through transubstantiation and that on that altar in the mass, they are re-crucifying Jesus every week. I hope you guys understand, hear how problematic that is. That nullifies the work of Christ. Totally nullifies the work of Christ. They believe you have to re-crucify Jesus all the time. Over and over and over again. Friends, we have a Savior who finished his work the first time. He gave, he gave his life once, and that was all that was necessary. They also have multiple mediators within the Catholic Church. You can't get, you don't have access to the Father. You don't have access to Jesus. You, you, have, to, you have to have a mediator, either a priest or Mary or one of the dead saints has to mediate for you so that your prayers can be heard by Jesus or by the Father. Completely nullifying the work of Christ as our one high priest. We, we, we just sang it in one of the songs. Our, our high priest whose name is love. We're gonna, we'll get to high priest. Everybody okay? This is, this is the reason why Martin Luther and Philip Melanchthon and Ulrich Zwingli and John Calvin, this is the reason why they were willing to die for, for what they, were, they believed in. Is because there, there's no salvation here. This is where I'm going to get excited. Number three, so we looked at the person of Christ. We looked at the work of Christ from a Roman Catholic doctrine perspective. Now we're going to look at the work of Christ, number three, from a Reformed Protestant perspective, from the Reformers. And we're going to do it. I mentioned earlier when we talked about the Old Testament, I talked about three offices in the Old Testament. I talked about the office of prophet, priest, and king. So we're going to show the work of Christ and how he fulfilled all three of those offices in his work and in his life. Okay? 
I'm going to read from the Heidelberg Catechism. Question number 31. If you don't have, if you've never read the Heidelberg Catechism, it's incredible. Listen to this language, okay? This is going to set the stage for us, okay? Question 31 of the Heidelberg Catechism asks this question. Why is he called Christ that is anointed? Listen to this answer. If this, don't, if this doesn't get your blood going, I don't know what can. Listen to this language. Because he is ordained of God the Father and anointed with the Holy Ghost to be our chief prophet and teacher who has fully revealed to us the secret counsel and will of God concerning our redemption and to be our only high priest who by the one sacrifice of his body has redeemed us and makes continual intercession with the Father for us and also to be our eternal king who governs us by his word and his spirit and who defends and preserves us in the enjoyment of that salvation which he purchased for us. All I can do is get worse than that. But here we go, okay? Number one, okay? The work of Christ from the Reformed perspective, Christ alone is our prophet. Solus Christus, he alone is our prophet. So let's ask the question, what is the role, what is the function of a prophet? The function of a prophet in the Old Testament is to speak God's word to the people, right? If they were, if they were, if they were worshiping idols or, or, or if they were doing something that, they, that broke the law that was clear, God would send a prophet to them and say, hey, he would say, thus says the Lord. The Lord says, stop doing this or this is going to happen, right? It's a, it's a covenant instruction from God through a prophet. That's what a prophet does, Okay? And we, at four points, we affirm that the office of prophet has ceased, okay? That office is no longer in effect. But we do believe that the gift of prophecy still continues, okay? Now, that's not like some weird, like, you know, weird thing. Not, not like some weird prophecy where, you know, we're just, you know, like having revelations or something like that, okay? But... What I'm doing right now, opening God's word and proclaiming it, that's prophetic. That's a prophetic ministry. That's a prophetic gift. Now, in my case, it's not, probably not a very good prophetic gift, but it's a prophetic gift nonetheless, okay? <laughs> right. God, we don't need any more prophets. We have, we have God's word complete. This is all we, this is all we need, it's closed. The canon is closed. Nothing will be added or subtracted from this anymore. It's all we need. Right? This is how God speaks to his people now. Let me, let me, let me, let me speak to everybody here. Okay? Now, <clears throat> do, you, do you have to be a preacher or a pastor to have a prophetic gift? Oh, the answer is no. no. Do you study the word? Do you, do, you, do you read the word? Do you know the word? 
If you do, guess what? There's a culture out there that's dying that needs your prophetic voice from that word. And it doesn't have to be me. And it doesn't have to be Jeremy. It doesn't have to be Brent or Daniel or any of the other pastors here. You have to do that. You have a, you have, if you know the word, go prophesy. Go take it into the culture. Have a prophetic voice in a culture that's, that desperately needs it. We're all called to do that. It's not just somebody standing up here. Next question. We need to know. How is it that Christ fulfills that role as prophet? How is Christ our alone, our prophet? Not a prophet, not some, not some normal prophet. How does Christ fulfill the whole office and become our prophet? Our single prophet. I'm going to give you four, four points here, I think. Four points. Okay? Number one, Christ alone is our prophet because he fulfills all the prophecies. You know how many prophecies there are of the Messiah in the Old Testament? Over 300. You know how many Jesus fulfilled? All of them. I'm gonna, I'll tell the story. I, I think I have time. Maybe not, but I'm going to tell it anyways. Okay. <clears throat> if, you, if you take silver dollars and you cover the state of Texas in silver dollars up to six feet high and you put one quarter in those silver dollars and you take a blind person into the quarters or into the silver dollars and they pull one coin out, just one coin, the chances that they'll pull that one quarter out of all those silver dollars are the same chances that one person would fulfill only five prophecies from the Old Testament. Five. He fulfilled 300. Jesus is our prophet because he fulfilled all the prophecies. Point number two. Christ alone is our prophet because he spoke with ultimate authority. Take the, ser- the Sermon on the Mount. Remember when he started talking about adultery and he started talking about murder? What did he say? He said, you've heard it said. But then what did he say after that? But I say to you. Man, he spoke with ultimate supreme authority. Hebrews 1 One through three, we put put that up there, good. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers through the prophets. Verse two, but in these last days, he has spoken to us, what? By his son. Will you put John 7, 45? Can you go to 45 for me? I don't have time to read all of them. John 7, 45 and 46, right? So, so, so the Pharisees, they've, they've, sent, they've sent these men to arrest Jesus, right? And, and the men come back, and they, and they come back to the Pharisees, and, and, they, don't, and they don't have Jesus. And the, guys are, and, and the Pharisees are like, we told you to go get the man. Where is he? And, and listen to what they said. The officers then came to the chief priests and the Pharisees who said to them, why did you not bring him? Look what, look what they said. The officers answered, no one ever spoke like this man. 
Christ alone is our prophet because he spoke with ultimate authority. Number three, Christ alone is our prophet because he is the word incarnate. He is the word. John 1, one right? We, we said it earlier. In the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. Jesus is the very word of God. That's why he's our prophet because what did, what did prophets do? They brought the words of God to the people. Well, the word came in flesh, John 1:14. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. God's word revealed God to the world in a person. We look, we put John 14, 8 up there, please. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father, and it is enough for us. What did Jesus say? Jesus said to him, have I been with you so long and you still don't know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has, what? Seen the Father. Jesus is the revelation of God. Full revelation of God in flesh. Last one, number four. Christ alone is our prophet because he continues his prophetic ministry today. His prophetic ministry has not ended. It continues. It continued then and it continues today. Think about Pentecost. What happened at Pentecost? At Pentecost, Jesus ascends into heaven. He sends the Holy Spirit. And then what happens? They begin to prophesy. They begin to prophetically preach the word of God and the gospel and people were believing it. What, what happened after that? What did the apostles do? They wrote the whole New Testament. What is that? That's Jesus' prophetic ministry. The whole New Testament is a continuation of the prophetic ministry of Christ that he commissioned his apostles to do after he ascended. His prophetic ministry continues today. His prophetic ministry continues today through spirit-filled preaching. Men, men in the pulpit opening God's word, proclaiming God's word to God's people, applying it to their lives. And his prophetic ministry continues today through the spirit-illuminating study of his word. So when you open up your Bibles and you're reading and studying, you're a part of Jesus' continuation of his prophetic ministry. He continues today. Second point, that's, him, that's our prophet. Christ alone is our high priest. So what is the function of a high priest? Well, the high priest in the Old Testament is a mediator between God and man. I'm going to read from, a, from Hebrews chapter 5. This, is, this summarizes it perfectly. Hebrews 5.1 says this, For every high priest chosen from among men is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God to offer gift and sacrifices for sin. That's, that's the role of a high priest, is to offer sacrifices on behalf of the sins of the people. 
And in the Old Testament, it started with Aaron, the, the brother of Moses, and that line continued through the tribe of Levi, and Le- Levites would be the ones who would become the high priest. And the Levites were the ones, the high priests were the only ones who were allowed into the holy place of the tabernacle and the temple once a year to offer sacrifice on behalf of the people on the day of Yom Kippur, the day of atonement. That's who the high priest is in the Old Testament. So then how does Jesus fulfill that? How is Jesus our high priest? Christ alone, solus Christus, our high priest. I got four points again. Told you you were going to like the note taking. Here we go. Point number one. Christ alone is our high priest because he's our representative obedience. What does that mean? Well, every week when we stand up here and we proclaim the gospel, we don't just say Jesus died for your sins, but that's true. He did, but that's not all we say. What do we say first? He lived a perfect life that you and I could never live. We needed a representative on our behalf to do and obey the will of God and the law of God the way that our first parents did not. We needed a new representative. Adam was our representative. He messed it all up. We needed a new representative. And that's a mediatorial work. That's a high priestly work on behalf of us from Christ. Will you put uh, Hebrews chapter 5 up there, please? These these verses are incredible. Chapter 5, Hebrews chapter 5. In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications and loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverence. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. After being what? Made perfect. He became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. By being designated by God a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. We will not talk about Melchizedek today. We do not have 17 hours. (laughs) But Jesus was perfect. That's what it said. He was perfect. We needed a representative who was perfect. Second reason why Christ alone is our high priest. Christ alone represents a new humanity that he created in himself. He created a new humanity in himself. Would you put Hebrews chapter 2 up there? Listen, for surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Who's the offspring of Abraham? What did we talk about last week? Why was Abraham counted righteous? Because he believed. His, his faith was counted to him as righteousness, right? So that's who we are. You, you are the family of Abraham. If you believe in Jesus, you're, you're part of the family of Abraham. Why? Because you have faith in Christ. That's how we receive our righteousness. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers. Get that. Get that. What, what the, uh, Paul, I'll, I'll, we'll say the author of Hebrews, but it's Paul, okay? What, whatever. Okay. <laughs> right. what he, get what he's saying. G, he's calling you and me brothers. 
This is him creating a new humanity. Jesus is creating a new family, a new humanity in, by com, becoming like us. So that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. Creating, he created a new humanity in himself. If you were here, if you were here for the Ephesians series, that's what we called the book of Ephesians. We literally called the series a new humanity. Why? Because Jesus takes people that are far off and he tears down the dividing walls of hostility and he creates in that one man a new humanity. And that's a high priestly work, as we just read. Number three. Christ alone. Why is he our high priest? Because Christ alone made a one-time sacrifice for our sins. Remember what we said about the Roman Catholic doctrine. They re-sacrifice Jesus every week. I'm going to get fired up here in a minute. Hebrews 10, please. This is Hebrews 10. Listen, listen, this is incredible. Listen to this. Every priest stands daily. Daily. At his service, offering repeatedly, repeatedly the same sacrifices, same sacrifices over and over and over again which can never take away sins. But when Christ, but, Bible but, but, when Christ had offered for all time, all time, all time, a single sacrifice, one time, for sins, he sat down. Why do you sit down? It's done. Done. Finished. There doesn't need to be another sacrifice. Jesus even said, Tetelestai. It is finished. Praise God. He sat down at the right hand of God because the work is complete. Waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. Look at verse 14. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time. Single offering, all perfected. Not waiting for something to be perfected. Not waiting for something to get better. He did it one time, perfected all time. Those who are being sanctified. I'm ready. Come on. I'm about ready to jump off the stage and karate kick somebody. (laughs) Point number four. Christ alone. He is our high priest because Christ alone is our advocate and intercessor. We, we, We sang it in the song. He ever lives to intercede for me. 
John chapter 17. Oh, man. This is... You have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Listen, this is the high priestly prayer. That's literally what John 17 is called. Now they know that everything you have given me is from you. Keep going. For I have given them the works that you gave me, and they have received them and have come to know in truth that I came from you, and they have believed that you sent me. Get this, verse 9. I am praying for them. I am not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me. For they are yours. If you don't know what this is saying, Jesus prayed for you before you were ever born. In his earthly life, he prayed for you. If that doesn't get you jazzed up, I don't know what does. 1 John 2.1, I'm just going to quote it for you. 1 John 2.1, I have told you these things so that you may not sin, but if you do sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Christ Jesus, the righteous. When we sin, the Father, Jesus, our, our high priest, turns to the Father when we sin, and he says, they're covered in my righteousness. They're ours. Praise God. Maybe you have a priestly gift. Maybe you are able to use the Bible to encourage other people. Maybe you are good at applying the, the, the gospel in all situations. Man, use that gift. Use that priestly gift of, of, of loving others, recognizing where they are, and, try, and being that, being a, a, a human mediator between God and that person to just speak truth to them. Use that gift. Finally, finally, so Christ alone is our prophet, Christ alone is our high priest, Christ alone is our king. So what is the function of a king? Let me give you a couple functions of the king. A king rules his kingdom, right? A king, a king cares for his subjects. He puts laws in place that are going to protect his people, which is what God did in the Ten Commandments. He gave them the law to protect them. The law wasn't to keep them down and to hold them down and to keep them from doing what they wanted to do. The law was to protect them because God knows what's good for them. A good king protects, and a good king fights. Kings don't just sit on their fannies and watch what happens to their people. They go out and fight for their people. Saul, Saul was a man of war. Think about David. God did not even let David build the temple. He made Solomon do it. Why? Because David had so much blood on his hands from the wars that he went and was fighting for his people. A king cares, fights for his people. 
I don't have time to... David's kingship, it points to something far greater. You can go to, you can go to 2 Samuel chapter 7, and you can read that chapter. What God does in that chapter is he promises David that his son is going to build the temple. Solomon is going to build his temple. But that the throne of that temple is not always just going to be in a building. That throne, that temple, that kingdom is everlasting, is what God tells David. Your kingdom will be everlasting. Why? Because the kingdom and the kingship of David points to something far greater. points to our king, the one true king. So how, how is it that Jesus is our, Christ alone is our king? Solus Christus. Okay, I got another list for you. Number one, how is it that Christ alone is our king? Because of his victorious first coming. Put Colossians chapter 2 up there, please. And you were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh. God made you alive together with him, having forgiven all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. Guess what? What did that do? He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them. Brothers and sisters, we have a victorious Savior. He, he left nothing undone. It is finished. We know that. First, we're going to get to 1 Corinthians 15. What is that? It's all about resurrection. Paul even gets there. He says, death, where is your sting? It's It's gone. The sting of death for the believer is gone because Christ is victorious. And therefore in him, we will be victorious. He is our king because of his victorious first coming. Number two, he is our king because of his sovereign rule at the right hand of the father right now. We put Ephesians chapter 1 up there. In that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly places. Listen, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things, over all things to the church. Christ alone is our king because he reigns through us in the church right now, still. He is sovereignly reigning 
from the right hand of the Father. And the Father has given him all things into his hand. That's why, that's why the Great Commission is so important. Because what is the Great Commission? Right? All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to Christ. Therefore, what? Go and make disciples of all nations. Why? Because everything is under the control of Christ right now. I'm going to give you a, I got time for like, give me one more in 90 seconds. I'm going to give you an Abraham Kuyper quote, okay? You go look look up who that is. Here's here's Abraham Kuyper quote. There is not one square inch in the whole domain of our human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry, mine. He is our only king because he reigns sovereignly right now. Number three, Christ alone is our king because of his triumphant second coming. If, the, uh, if you're doing communion, if you're helping communion, would you, come, you can come on, come on down. I'm going to read. I'm going to read from Revelation chapter 19. Triumph. Christ alone is our king because he's coming back triumphantly. Verse 11, then I saw heaven opened and behold a white horse. The one who's sitting on it is called faithful and true and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire and on his head are many diadems and he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood and the name by which he is called is the word of God. And the armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God, the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh, he has the name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. Come, Lord Jesus, soon. Let's pray. Jesus, we confess that you alone are our prophet, the word of God. We confess that you alone are our great high priest. As you continue to mediate our relationship, the relationship between us and God, constant intercession on our behalf. Jesus, we confess you are our king. We bow before you and worship you. We love you in Christ's name, amen.